Yes. Good morning. Y'all look good again. Every time I see you, you look so beautiful. Especially you, honey. That's not you, Nathan, I'm talking about. That's my wife, so don't get confused. I need to maximize my stage space up here. Well, we are uh, going to be out of series this morning, but we're starting a new series next week called The Fight. Mark's going to be kicking us off in that as we look at uh, what it means to take up the armor of God out of Ephesians. And I'm really, I was praying through out of series, what do I do, God? Where do you want us to go? Um, It's very challenging for me to just do, you know, one-off sermons as it is for Mark and everybody else because uh, we, we love going through the text as a whole and just sticking with a book. And so every once in a while, though, you just don't have time to, to do one of those. So I thought, God, what, what can I do that, that's going to be beneficial for the body? And I really feel like he just settled me on not only this passage, but this topic of uh, what I've called wake up, wake up. And I, I thought as we get into the fight next week, uh, it's important that we know that we're in a fight, right? Because if you don't know that there is a fight, you're not going to be engaged. You're not going to be prepared. And so that, that's where we're going this morning. I do want to say, too, real quick before we jump in, uh, just how happy I am for Seth and Karen. I know he's been um, just a tremendous asset here to the church. And, and I'll say this because I have the opportunity. I have a microphone. Uh, rarely do you find someone that is so extremely gifted and talented and just as equal as those talents and gifts are their character and their integrity. And Seth is definitely one of, one of those men. And I've been very privileged to know him and watch his journey. When we first came to Hope, he was the youth pastor. And uh, so to see him grow out of that into his giftings and where he has naturally been blessed by God has been just awesome watching him. Uh, so make sure you encourage them, pray for them. Uh, I do not envy him going into a high school uh, but it could be worse. You'd be going into a middle school, and that would be much more, much more challenging. So, as I mentioned, I, I've titled it "Wake Up," and I was thinking that we all wake up in different ways, right? Because we're all wired differently, we're all made differently, we all respond to things differently. That's part of the beauty of God's mosaic creation: is that He didn't make us robots, and so we all tend to respond to things different ways. And for some of us, in the morning. Uh, we might not even need an alarm. I think some of my friends that work on farms and ranches and different things, and they just might naturally get up with the progression of the sun and the roosters and whatever else is going on in their world, and that works perfectly for them. For others of us, we need like that nuclear reactor alarm that goes off, and we need it to just constantly loop every two minutes just so we can begin to realize that we're still alive and and contemplate is it worth opening our eyes right some of us are kind of in between we just like that gentle hum of an alarm clock or or maybe you like music to just kind of go off and gently remind you that it's time to start your day with something positive and encouraging some of us are very heavy sleepers and it takes a lot for us to get going and then some of us uh, myself I'm a very light sleeper in the morning, my wife would tell you in the middle of the night, I'm a very heavy sleeper and that I snore. I don't think that's true. I think she's delusional from working night shift at the hospital and just, you know, assumes these things happen. But man, when, I, when that alarm just first goes off, I am up. I'm ready to get going. Uh, I love my coffee and my time with God and everything like that in the morning. But uh, I really don't need the coffee to get me up and get going. I'm just wired as a morning person. That's very annoying to some of you. I understand that. 
because uh, you're wired very differently. You don't generally get going in life till about one o'clock in the afternoon, and that's okay too, because again, that's how God made you. I always find it interesting, uh, young couples, and this isn't a, a dig on Nathan and Cassie since they're the most new young couple that's married that I know, but young couples that, uh, or, or couples in general, you don't have to be young, that start off in marriage together and they think, oh, we get married, sleeping together is going to be so romantic. We're just going to be wrapped up like a pretzel, and we're just going to cuddle, and the alarm's going to go off, we're going to hit snooze, and we're just going to be cozy, and we're going to wake up in the morning, and it's going to be just like Hollywood, and we're going to kiss, and it's going to be romantic and all this. And you can kind of get through that season for a few months, maybe even a year, but then reality sets in, and you realize, if I sleep like this, both arms and one of my legs is going to be asleep when I wake up in the morning. This is not good, and so you separate, and in our house, we have, like Pastor Mark does, we have about 22,000 pillows in our bed, because uh, you can't have enough, apparently, uh, and so my wife is just surrounded by cushions, and I'm okay with that, because I'm an edge-of-the-bed sleeper, and that's where I sleep, and uh, so I'm good there, uh, and, and when, man, when we first married and sleeping together, I'd wake up in the morning, and I didn't need toothpaste, I was so in love. It was good, right? Reality will set in, and you'll, you'll be like, whoa, <laughs> there's a chemical experiment going on on that side of the bed, and, and you don't wake up and just like, oh, baby, good morning, the day is starting. It's like, it's your turn to get up and get the kids. It gets even worse when you have kids waking up and get going, right? Because even when you're awake, you'll act like you're not. Oh, she'll get... I'm not going in that room. I know that diaper is going to be rancid as all get out. The sheets are soaked. I'm not dealing with a bottle this one. She'll get it kind of thing, right? We all wake up in different ways in different seasons in our life. And I think one of the tools that the enemy loves to use against us is slumber. And I don't even just mean like actual sleep. I mean just almost being in a fog, being in a haze, just kind of existing through life, oblivious to what really is going on around us. In your notes, I have as my, my kickoff text this morning. It's not the main place we're going to be, uh, but I thought how appropriate in Ephesians 5.14. Paul says this, writing to the church, to a group of Christians, Paul says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on us. Why would Paul feel it necessary to tell the church, Hey, wake up. Don't be asleep. He, he does that, as does Christ and so many other New Testament writers, and we see it in the Psalms and throughout Scripture, this, this thing of we need to wake up, we need to be alert, we need to be vigilant, we need to be sober, we need to, to realize there is more going on around us than just the routine of our daily lives. Check out, these aren't in your notes, they're not on the screen, but just a few verses I pulled down this morning on this topic. Luke 21, 36, stay awake at all times, praying that you might have the strength to escape things that are going to take place. Matthew 24, 42, therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. 1 Peter 1, 13, prepare your minds for actions, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Revelation 16, 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. Luke 21, 34, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down 
with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Do you you catch that this theme is, I mean, Scripture is just littered with this idea of be alert. Wake up. Why? Because there is a fight going on for your soul and my soul. We may not realize it, but in this very moment, as in every moment of every day that you have ever breathed a breath in your life, there is a war between two kingdoms, light and darkness, competing, fighting, going head to head for the souls of man. And if we're not careful, we'll get so busy, as Luke just said, with the cares of this life, we'll get into our routines, that all of a sudden we'll begin to operate on this belief system that we don't have time to give weight properly to the thought that there are two kingdoms at war, that at stake is my life and the life of my family and my children and my neighbors and my friends and the people I care about. It's easier and honestly quite a bit more comforting to not sink in these terms, to just kind of be oblivious a little bit and and go through the, the routine and the motions of what we're supposed to be doing as a Christian, even sincerely, but not give thought or weight to this idea that there are these two kingdoms at war. One kingdom is a kingdom of light, one of darkness, one of love, one of hate, one of hope, one of despair, one of joy, one of depression, one of selflessness, and one that is selfish. One of resilience and one of independence, one of community, one of isolation, one of life, one of death. One whose king said, I've come in John 10.10, I've come to give you life and not just average life, life more abundant. But he who, the enemy, Satan, his kingdom is all about death. He came to steal, steal and to kill and to destroy. Make no mistake about it, there are two kingdoms at war. And can I tell you this? Do not be so naive to think that just because you came to a building this morning where the church is gathered together, that all of a sudden evilness and wickedness in the kingdom of darkness is just kind of waited in the parking lot for you to come back out and start your week. Throughout every moment of every day, your name, every man, woman, child, senior citizen, it doesn't matter, your name is uttered on the lips of light, just as much as it's dripping from the vile, disgusting lips of wickedness. There is a war for you and for me. And I don't know if we we live life fully comprehending the weight of that on a regular basis. And I think it's time we need to wake up. If there was ever a time in the history of mankind, it feels like in 2019, in this world, as Christ's return is getting closer and closer, we can't just be oblivious and, and think of, of life as just the things we've got to go through because we know what will happen, right? I can tell you almost, at least when school was in, I can tell you how life happens for me. You, you get up in the morning and then you get up the first series of kids and you get breakfasts going and then you get their outfits out and you try and talk to them about what they have going on in the day and you get them dressed and you get them down to the bus stop Then you come back to the house and you get the rest of the kids up and you get everybody ready in that phase. And then you leave for the day and you realize, oh no, the van's on empty and I've got to put gas in the van. So then you stop and put gas in the van and you're driving along and talking about the activities and the schedules and who's doing what throughout the day. And you get everyone settled and you get to work and you sit down and maybe you were able to stop and get a coffee on the way and you heard a song and it triggered a thought. Oh yeah, I love that song on Spotify. I think I'll check that out. And you pull that up and you listen to that. And then that reminds you of a YouTube clip that someone told you you should watch and so you watch that and then 
reality hits and you got to start your job and so you start working and you do the things and unexpectedly things come up in work maybe that you didn't plan on and so you adjust and you get those done and then your wife calls and says are we doing lunch and of course you're a priority so we're going to do lunch and you meet up for lunch and you talk through what happened in the morning and all, and, and life goes, who's picking up the medications this afternoon? Oh, I'll get those. I got to get the prescription from the doctor's office. I'll drop it off at the pharmacy. I'll pick that up later. We'll do that. When are we going to the gym? What are we having for dinner? Hugh, it's nine o'clock and we get to sit down for the night and, you know, fall asleep watching, I don't know, whatever TV show we're watching. We go to bed and set the alarm and get up and life happens on day two. And that's not even really justice to an average day in my life. I can't even imagine what your lives are like as well, right? We have all these things that happen. Brakes on the vehicles go out, right? Food needs to be put in the pantry because eating is a good thing. Uh, things need to be repaired. The projects you've started around the house are starting to get in bad phases. I started a deck project months ago, and I was moving right along, and then it got to be hotter than the Sahara Desert, so I stopped. And then there was a reprieve last week, and I realized half my wood that I bought for the deck is now warped. So now I've got to like adjust for all that. And as I'm making adjustments, getting ready to go, then all of a sudden God started gathering animals in groups of two this week, and rain just poured down, right? And now my, my yard, thankfully, is green, but it's now like a, a wheat field, and it's tall, and it's big. And so there's always stuff right? There's always stuff. And what we don't realize in the midst of all the details of everything that is going on, all around us is this realm, this spiritual kingdom that we cannot see that is in constant warfare from my heart and your heart. Do you agree with that? Do you grasp that? We need to wake up. Life is about so much more than our schedules and the things on our calendars. Because we are breathing but for a brief moment in eternity. And that moment will soon be passed. And then all the things that I just mentioned that fill up my day will not matter. The brakes on my vehicle in heaven will not matter. Do you understand that? The food in my cupboard will not matter. Whether or not I ran out of diapers and had to use paper towels soaked from the kitchen sink will not matter. Whether or not I was able to vacuum up all the Cap'n Crunch out of the van will not have mattered. Whether or not the deck leans this way or that way when you walk, it doesn't matter. Do we understand the weight of what's coming? Christ understood this more than anyone else. And I want to look at the story of him being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. We're going to be in Luke's gospel, chapter number four. If you want to follow along, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to go through this rather quickly. There's six things I want to point out. Six sounds like a lot. It's not. Don't worry. There's a second service right after you. So I've got to finish on time. Six, six lessons I want to point out of this area of us just needing to be aware of what we're in. Lessons that we glean from Christ. So I want to read the narrative. It's 13 verses. I'm going to read it to us because I want us to understand the full context of what's going on. Chapter number four, verse number one of Luke says this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, you might want to circle that word full, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, 
If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. I almost wanted to read that in a sinister voice, but I didn't. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall not, or you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So six observations. The first thing I want to point out to you is this. The battle is often most intense in our lives as the church. The battle is often the most intense when we're getting it right spiritually. Isn't that encouraging this morning? So the more you get it right, the more you're walking in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, the more you're obedient and surrendered to God, the more you're living your life and following Him in true, authentic discipleship, the more you're compassionate, the more giving you are, the more intense the battle is going to get. Yes! That's just the motivation we're looking for, right? Notice what it says in the text. In verse 1 it says, Jesus was full. He was full of the Holy Spirit. I want to stop just there for a moment. I don't know if you've ever experienced what it means to be fully full of the Holy Spirit. And I'm I'm not going to get off on this theological tangent about being full of the Spirit versus filled and uh, the, the Spirit coming down on us, anything like that. What I want us to understand is there have been times and seasons in my life where I have felt full of the Spirit, where I have felt such sweet intimacy and fellowship with the Holy Spirit, I felt like I could charge hell with a squirt gun. I felt like there was nothing I could not accomplish for the kingdom of God. I was ready to go to any country. I was ready to have any conversation. I was just so full. Worship was just, it would bring me to tears. Uh, And I can almost probably count on both hands the number of times in 45 years I've, I've had these seasons in my life where I have felt just overwhelmingly full of the Holy Spirit. If I, as a mere human, can understand just a little bit of what that is like, how much more so the Son of God, who is perfect and has never known sin in any way, how much more awesome and overwhelming would it be for Him to be full of the Holy Spirit? Wow. It also tells us that He had just come from Jordan. He had just been baptized. He had just been recognized by his Father in heaven. He had just been proclaimed to be the Son of God. He has now been commissioned. He is starting out on his public ministry. 
He doesn't know what it means to be beat down by people who complain and are frustrated because you're not doing things the way they want you to do them. He doesn't know what it's like to have to get involved in people's mess and, and counsel them and pour scripture into them and, and help them. He, he's yet to experience the weight of sin fully being placed on him three years later on the cross. He's yet to know the, the weightiness and the brokenness of taking on the burdens of so many thousands of people that are coming to him for healing spiritually and physically. He hasn't had any of that. All he has up to this point that we know in Scripture is that he is completely full of the Spirit. He, he's been baptized and he is starting his ministry. Uh, wow, what an awesome, awesome place for him to just be ready to do the work of the Father. And it says immediately he was taken from that point and led into the wilderness. And if you know anything in Scripture, the wilderness is always a place of testing, a place of trial, a place of, of where you're just put to, to the weight of, of issues and to see what you come out of uh, on the other side of being. And so Christ goes out there, and for 40 days he walks through the wilderness not eating. Wow. If Christ, being full of the Spirit, free from sin, free from the burdens of brokenness and everything else, if He can be tested and tempted and attacked, how much more so those of us who are broken, although redeemed, who are struggling with the weight of life that we've been living, who are just kind of trying to get through another day and another week, who maybe are not quite full of the Spirit, even though we might know God and might have the Spirit inside of us, we've just kind of become a little bit numb to it. Or maybe we've just ignored the Spirit's voice for so long that it's so quiet and so still, we're not sensitive to it. So we just kind of live life immune to what's going on around us. And we have this dilemma that we're placed right in the middle of. We either choose not to fight because we're backsliding or we're, we've drifted so far and we just kind of exist and pretend nothing's going on. Or we do the opposite. We realize that there is a fight and, and we engage and we fight with all that we have knowing, knowing that it's only going to get harder. How many of you would take on a task if I said, hey, you're doing great. I want you to keep taking on this task because the more you take it on, the worse it's going to get for you. How many would sign up for that in the lobby today? I don't think we would have many sign up at all. We, we shun away from that in our humanity. We shun away from that in our culture. We don't want that. We live our lives based on the opposite. We live our lives based on we want to get to that point where everything's easier in life. Not everything is harder. Peter would remind us in chapter 1, 6 through 7, again, this is just extra for you, but Peter would say, be truly glad. There's wonderful joy ahead. Well, what is this joy? What is this gladness, Peter? Even though you must endure many trials for a while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine, that you are being tested as fire tests and purifies gold through your faith, though your faith is far more precious than just mere gold. Peter says, listen, you should be excited because you're getting ready to be tested in life. Again, it's countercult. We don't live life that way. We don't, we don't want to go that route. A lot of you know, because I've been blessed to speak numerous times, so you know enough about me. You know my family is now a military family. I have a son in the Marine Corps. My daughter is leaving in two weeks to join the Navy. Ah, pray for me in that. Uh, and, and you should also be giving thanks today because your Navy is going to be, be getting a whole lot better here real soon. Like, I wouldn't want to be a foreign country. That's all I'm saying. 
because my daughter is going to kick butt in the Navy. But this is the reality. My son's been in for almost two years. I hear a lot of stories about military life, Marine Corps, and uh, I know that's a different breed all in and of itself. But this is something that always strikes me is that he tells me stories about his, his platoon buddies and his squad and their training exercises and things that they do. So often it is so frustrating, so annoying for them, the things that they have to do. Uh, they just, he just has such a hard time dealing with it sometimes, whether it's just moving your room from one side of the hall to the other side or moving your room from one building to a whole other building, or cleaning uh, your bunk even though you just cleaned it, or going out on this big training mission and really all you do is sit in a muddy uh, mud puddle out in the woods for two weeks. Like, there's just all kinds of things, and it gets so annoying, so frustrating. He's, he's always telling me, everyone just thinks it's so stupid. Leadership, oh, it's just so frustrating sometimes. You know, we're supposed to do this, and we're not doing anything, da 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 And I often think to myself, perhaps, uh, perhaps, that the military is trying to train you to do even the most stupidest mundane task with absolute, complete obedience, surrender instantaneously. Yes, sir, I will do it. Yes, ma'am, no matter what you ask of me, I'm there. Consider it done. So that when you get into the fight, when you get into the warfare, and the general or the commanding officer or the squad leader or the sergeant says, hey, I need you to do this, and I need you to do it right now, you're not like, that's stupid. That doesn't even make sense, <laughs> right? The same is so true in our spirit because I fear because we are so often asleep in this journey of life that when Christ says, hey, I need you to do this, we're like, what? <laughs> That's crazy. You think I'm going to tell my neighbor about gospel? No, I'll wave and show them the love of God. I'm not going to tell them about Jesus on a cross. What? You want me to go to a foreign field? No. (laughs) No, I'm not going to do that. Perhaps, just perhaps, if we could just be alert, be awake, and start saying, yes, God, I will obey. I'll do it immediately. He would take us to places we couldn't even imagine. Second thing I want to point out, Satan is intentional in how he attacks you and what weapons he uses. You'll notice in your notes, I didn't give you any fill in blanks this week because I, I really want you to get the weight of this and not miss it. Satan is so intentional on how he attacks you and what weapons he uses. Notice the first attack he does on Christ. He comes to him with his most basic needs, bread. We're told in the text, Jesus hadn't ate for 40 days. In the text, I love how Luke, the doctor, writes it. He says he was hungry. Yo, if I go, I just said yo in church. If I go... If I go a day and miss, like, lunch or dinner, I am, like, irritable. I don't know about you, but, like, if I go a full day without eating, someone's getting hurt. Like, I've tried this new fancy keto diet and all this other stuff. I start hallucinating after, like, a day and a half and have to get off diets like that. It's lack of self-discipline, I know, but I like to eat. If you see my father, you know I come from a long line of people that like to eat right? If it's got buffet in it, you know God is going to be there. Like I like to eat. I can't even fathom walking in a desert. I've done long fast as spiritual disciplines in my life, and it's not, I'm not saying that to celebrate me. So I'm just saying I can understand a little bit of fasting and what that takes. I can't imagine fasting 40 days in the wilderness. That's a whole nother level of intensity, right? And notice what Satan does. Satan comes at him first where he is most physically vulnerable. 
Is that not true in our own lives? He comes at us at the most basic areas where we feel our struggles are the greatest. Our physical needs, whether it's intimacy, uh, pleasure, value, uh, self-esteem. All of these things that are just these physical needs that we feel or felt needs that we, we believe that we have. And he comes and that's where he attacks us. And I'm, I'm left with the question, do I know what my physical weaknesses are? Do you know what yours are? Do you know where you're prone to be wounded? Do you know where you're likely to fail? Because guess what? If you don't, I can guarantee with absolute confidence, Satan does. He absolutely knows every detail of your life, and he knows exactly where to come at you, when to come at you. It's no coincidence that Christ did not eat for 40 days, and the first thing Satan comes at him with is, hey, you know, if you change that into some hot Wonder Bread, you know how it gets squishy and everything? Mm, That will be so good. He's very intentional at how he attacks and what weapons he uses against us. Rarely, he does at times, but rarely will he come right out and punch you in the face with, man, that woman is sexy looking. That's right, I said sexy in church. Rarely will he come at you and say, you should go into that dealer and buy that BMW. Most of you should not do that, okay? Rarely does he do that, right? Why? Because he's intentional and he is good at what he does. So he'll come at us with things like, you deserve to be happy. Or, no one really cares about you, so it really doesn't matter. Or, at least they appreciate you. Or, everybody's doing it. That's a good one. He likes that one a lot. Satan has a plan of attack. And understand this, it is designed specifically with you in mind. Every single one of you. And you may not like this reality, but I'm going to tell you about it. There is as much demonic presence around and through this building as there is in your home and on your job and in your yard and in your Walmart and in your car and in your Walmart and in your home and in your neighborhood and in your Walmart and in your car. You can kind of tell where most of my attacks come at, right? We, we think he just kind of suddenly rings the doorbell and shows up at 10 o'clock at night when you're alone on your tablet or whatever downstairs. No. You're surrounded by evil, even now. Do you realize that? Do you realize that? That's heavy. I want it to be heavy. And I, believe me, I, it's not my intent to scare you. If I thought somehow scaring you would get you to choose Christ or to wake up, then I guess I would do that because unapologetically... That matters more than anything else, okay? So that's not my intent. My intent is to get us to wake up and to realize there is more going on. It's not just a coincidence that, oh, how do you know? I'm, I'm all alone. I'll never forget uh, coming out of my sexual abuse as a child where I was abused for, for seven years. At the age of 11, literally two days after I told my abuser, you will never touch me again. I remember this day as vivid as anything. I got on my BMX bike, because that's what you did back in the 80s, and I got on my bike, and I rolled over to the playground at Sherrod Elementary School, where I loved to hang out and shoot baskets, and I threw my bike in the grass and was walking across the drainage ditch to get onto the basketball court, and there in the grassy field, Satan had wonderfully gifted me the very first pornographic magazine I would ever see in my life. Coincidence? No. 
Here I thought, well, I am going to crush this wickedness in my life and never allow it to happen again. And meanwhile, the enemy's like, oh, time to move on. Phase two, here we go. And to this day, I can still vividly remember everything of that afternoon. Every image, every word I read in that article, everything that Satan beautifully laid out for me. Why? Because he's so intentional. And you think, well, it's, it's no big deal. I'm just listening to this. I'm just watching this. I'm just engaging in this behavior. It's serious, people. It's serious. Eternity hangs in the balance. Souls are at stake. And you say, well, I already know Christ. Well, just perhaps you're the one man or the one woman, the young, young person or the older person that Christ wants to use to reach somebody else. But because Satan has you on the sidelines, that conversation is not going to happen now. Number three, the enemy's persistent. He won't quit just because a method doesn't work or because you made it on the other side. He's persistent. He won't give up. Look at the next verse five. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And, and I put in my notes, he offers a kingdom exchange. Essentially what Satan is saying to Christ here is you give up your kingdom and I will give you mine in place of it. And it will satisfy you like you cannot imagine. It will give you joy. It will give you fulfillment. It will give you happiness. It will meet that inner ache, that inner need right now that you think is just hunger. You'll just be removed from all of that and you'll be in this place of glory and attention and adoration and it will make all your dreams come true essentially. And you know what? He does the exact same thing to us, especially Especially as the church, he will come to us and say, give up his kingdom for my kingdom. Give up reading the word of God for reading the latest headlines. Give up purity in your relationships for just a little thrill because you deserve it. Give up the glory of God for the goodness of mankind, right? And so he offers us this kingdom exchange, And sadly, sadly, we fall into that trap so often, so frequently. And he doesn't always come out and blatantly say, well, if you worship me, I'll give it to you. He's very subtle again with us. But make no mistake about it, when we would rather look at the naked form of a woman instead of the word of God, we are choosing to worship Satan instead of God. When we would rather choose to be greedy And stingy with what God has blessed us rather than to be giving and full of compassion. Make no mistake about it. We're taking our devotion, our worship, and we're taking it off of God. And we're putting it on the king of this world, Satan. When I choose my rights, my feelings, my desires, my preferences over grace, mercy, the word of God, compassion, redemption, the gospel. When I choose what I want, what I feel, what I think I deserve instead of surrender to God, I'm saying you are no longer the God I am worshiping. I'm now worshiping my own God. Man, it's quiet in here this morning. You're just going to get me fired up the quieter you stay, so don't worry about it. We cannot, we cannot, we cannot live in the kingdom of God and embrace the things of God while at the same time living in the kingdom of darkness and embracing the things of darkness. There cannot be fellowship uh, between light and darkness. Scripture clearly teaches us this. Jesus reminds us of where our worship is supposed to be placed. He says to Satan here in the text, we are to worship 
God alone. And yet we so easily give that away. And I'm stuck with that question. Are there areas in my life where I'm worshiping other things than God? That's part of the enemy's attack. Number four. This is where I'm going to step on your toes and start preaching, so get ready. Number four, Satan attacks us by trying to test God supernaturally. Trying to test God supernaturally. He says to him, he takes him up to Jerusalem, sets him on this pinnacle, top of the temple, and he says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's telling Christ I want you to do something powerful. I want you to demonstrate something supernaturally that will just be like, wow, that's amazing. And Satan comes at us as he's done with Eve from the beginning with these subtle little questions. If you're really God, did did God really say? Is it really going to be that big a deal if you dot, 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 you fill in the blanks? And we're so quickly, so quickly, because I believe we're asleep, just letting go of stuff that we should be hanging on to. And so he comes at him with these questions, if God, if God. Understand this, God is not into negotiations. God does not work that way. He's not into, I'll do for you if you do for me. Jesus died to rescue us, to give us eternal life when we come to him, when we surrender everything to him. He takes that and exchanges it for eternal life. But he did not come to make a deal. We have nothing to offer him. There, there is nothing you could possibly give to Christ that will somehow enhance his glory and make him a better version of what he is or make the kingdom of life more powerful. You have nothing you can give him. He simply wants you to join him on mission. Yet we live our life like, okay, I'm going to give you this, God, and this. I'm gonna, as if we have any kind of control over that. And Satan demands of Jesus, do something supernatural here. And I think if there was ever a generation, I I believe it's mine anyway, I could be wrong, but if there was ever a generation where the words of Matthew 16 are prevalent, it's this generation where the Pharisees and Sadducees, they came to test Jesus. And they said to Jesus, hey, show us a sign. Show us a sign. If, If you have any kind of spiritual conversation, believe me, we just came out of Acts, so I am all about the power of the Holy Spirit. I will argue that with you all day long. I've already talked about being full of the Spirit, so this is not a knock on the spiritual gifts. But if there was ever a generation that is craving signs more than ever, it's this generation. We want to see people uh, healed supernaturally. So people flock to these faith healers that are nothing more than charlatans. Why? Because we crave that. I see it in, in many dear brothers and sisters that I love that crave the gift of tongues and crave the the gift of a prophetic word, and I, I'm just going to demonstrate my, my spirituality to you by, by living this out loud in front of other people. And, and Christ would say in Matthew, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. You're not going to get a sign. The only sign that's going to be given to you is the sign of Jonah, Jonah which was what? Scripture. He's saying, this is your sign. Quit living for something supernatural and miraculous. Oh, I'll believe God if you do this. If you give me this job and this promotion, if you intervene and set me on this path, then I will acknowledge you. If you make this relationship uh, into what I desire it to be, then I will be all about your kingdom. 
if you just give me this bonus to where I can do what I want to do and I'll give some of that back to the church. We seek these supernatural works of God and, and Satan does that to Christ here. He says, just, just throw yourself down. Don't worry. Something supernatural will happen. Scripture says that, that the angels are going to swoop down before you even nick your toe on a stone. And isn't it fascinating? I haven't even mentioned this yet, but isn't it fascinating that Satan knows Scripture and can quote it word for word? Oftentimes he'll twist it or take it out of context, but he knows Scripture. And yet Christ comes back at him constantly with accurate Scripture in context. I love, I put in your notes uh, for number five, take a stand, be gone, Matthew 4 version. I put that in there because the story is also captured for us in the Gospel of Matthew. And I love how the text there reads it. It's, it's a little more powerful, a little more accurate uh, to the Greek language where it says, Jesus said to him in verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. There comes a point in time where we have to take a stand. Where we have to look at the enemy and say, no more. Leave me alone. Get out of my life. Go. I don't want you here. You are not welcome. I don't want you in my home. I don't want you in my relationships. You are not allowed to be at my job. I don't want your presence. Scripture says I am to give my devotion to God alone. Therefore, there is none left for you. Leave me. There comes a point when we have to take a stand, where we have to determine that we are going to say, no more. Not in my home. Not with my children. Not in my marriage. Not in my friendships. I will not entertain the thought of darkness. No more. If we flirt with Satan... We're just welcoming sorrow down the road. I was reading this Welch proverb that said this, He who would not enter the room of sin should not sit at the door of temptation. I thought, wow, that's so good. It's so good. Because when we sit at that door of temptation, it's only a matter of time. Reminds me of Joseph. Boy, I wish I had time to preach through, through Genesis. I believe it's 39. Uh, and I don't, so I'm not going to go there. But Joseph just being determined to say no to Potiphar's wife. Lie with me, Joseph. No. How could I possibly do this wickedness against God? Thank God I'm not in Joseph's position. Thank God most of us are not in that position. Well, I need to have a conversation with him. And Joseph's like, no. And he runs and he gets out. He doesn't even entertain the idea. Well, they just needed somebody to talk to. You best run. You're setting yourself up for trouble. That's right. Amen. Thank you. I know. Last point, then I'm done. Satan is always looking for the next opportunity. I love, love that Luke includes 13. This verse to me, out of all these verses, I read 13 and I thought, wow, that is powerful. Powerful. Look what 13 says. When the devil had ended every temptation, not some, not a couple, when he had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus. That's where we often put our period, right? Woo! Rejected that floozy at work. I'm good to go. 
right? Yes, I saw the article and I didn't click on it. Phone down, victory's mine, right? That's, that's how we operate. Put your period there and move on. I weathered the temptation. He departed from him until an opportune time. Dude, you just got slapped down by the Son of God and you're still not giving up? Who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? That because I've weathered a storm, because I've gotten through a season, or because I've overcome one specific struggle or challenge in my life, that somehow I've got this. We need to wake up and realize we're never going to get this on this side of eternity. We are going to fight until our final breath. Do you understand that? The fight is never going to end. You are going to struggle with temptation for the rest of your life. Be encouraged. My father, my father, 73-year-old man, retired pastor, pastor about 30 years up in Alaska, started a church, been around the church since he was saved at the age of 15, loves God like no man I know preaching in Belton this morning. I said, how cool. Two Travis Watsons breaking the word out in Anderson, South Carolina. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? My dad struggled with pornography. Yes, it existed back in the 50s. I know that generation may not talk about it as much because you don't talk about those things. I often say 99% of men I encounter struggle with porn and the other 1% is usually lying. I can't tell you how many men I've been with. I don't care what their station is in life. Somebody will walk by and they'll be like, why? Because that's how we're made. Thanks to the sinful fall of mankind, our eyes wander and drift. So I asked my dad a few years back. He's 73, mind you. And I know he wouldn't be embarrassed me saying this. And I said to him, Dad, when do you get to that point? that you're like over the hurdle and you no longer struggle with lust. That you don't have to guard your eyes and always be diligent and everything else. And you know what he said to me? Son, it's harder today than it's ever been in my life. I was like, that sucks. That is not what I wanted to hear. The temptation is always going to be present. There are times it's more intense than others. When I'm walking in fellowship with God, when my relationship is right with my wife, when I'm living obediently and surrendered, that temptation can kind of diminish at times. But you know what? The seasons I've seen him come at me the hardest are the weeks when I get ready to preach or when I know I've got a counseling session coming up with somebody or... Uh, when my wife and I are in, endeavoring to do something for the kingdom of God, whatever that might be as a family or something, when I start looking towards that and say, yes, let's, let's take that mountain. Boom. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, you should read this Yahoo article about this naked chick. Like, what? what? Where did that thought even come from? Y'all are quiet, but you know what I'm talking about. You're acting like you don't know about temptation, but you know about temptation. Let's stop playing games in here, right? You're all alone. You're thinking, well, everybody's in bed. I guess one drink won't hurt. It's, it's just one shot in the arm, one puff on a pipe. It's just $100. Nobody will miss it. 
Don't act like you don't know about sin and temptation. You know about it. We all know about it. And if you think you're going to get to a certain place where it's just no big deal and some are less and some are more, you're crazy. We all are. We need to wake up and realize it is a constant war for your soul and my soul. I'm so glad. I'm so thankful. I can't wait, Mark, for you to start teaching us next week of Ephesians on the fight, taking up the armor of God. Why? We need to be ready. You need to be engaged. You need to be fighting on a regular basis. You need to understand when you open your eyes in the morning, it's on like Donkey Kong. There's a war going on that day. You got sons and daughters. You want the enemy to sift them and take them and break them and crush them and leave them some strung out attic in an alleyway or some abused piece of flesh that men have taken advantage of. Do you want them addicted to to pornography? Do you want them in broken marriage after broken marriage? Do you want them in and out of prison? Do Do you want them living a life of brokenness and enslavement to sin? I've been in a lot of those places myself. You don't want them there. You don't want to be there. We better snap out of it and realize there is a war going on. I end with this analogy. I mean, and, and it, it's, Scripture talks so much. I have so much more I could tell you. First Peter 5, 8, your enemy is the devil sneaking around trying to find someone to attack like a roaring lion. Job 2, 2 tells us that Satan's roaming the earth, checking out everything that's going on. Jesus tells Peter, Satan desires to sift you. I mean, we could go on and on and on with these passages. But I heard this story recently by Alistair Begg, who I love listening to just because of his accent. Like he could, you know, just read the Ten Commandments. and I'd be like, man, that was so powerful because he's got a, a, just a brilliant Scottish accent. Anyway, he was telling this story and I just thought, wow, that was, that was so profound. So he said, imagine this. Imagine you board your flight. You're on a flight somewhere. If you've never flown, pretend you've flown and you understand what I'm saying so you get on you got your little carry-on you're wondering who am I going to be sitting next to and I hope it's not crowded and uh, I hope there's enough leg room and you get in you put your bag up in the stowaway and you're all excited because you got like the the clear spot in the stowaway for your bag and you don't have to be the last person on there it's like oh what do I do with this 30 pound bag kind of thing and figuring that out right so you get it and you sit down in your little seat there 11d next to the window and you're all excited you got your window seat nobody's sitting beside you and you're just like yes it's gonna be a quiet flight there's no babies in sight yes that's a good thing uh this is just gonna be awesome there's no food so I don't got to worry about any of those issues and so uh you sit back and you start to pull out and the pilot comes over the intercom, as they usually do. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're thankful you decided to fly with our airlines today. We're going to be flying at such, such altitude. Temperature's going to blah, 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 blah. And then towards the end of the conversation, the pilot says to you, uh, ever since I started flying, it's been my desire to not crash very much. So have a nice flight. Would that not make you sit up in your seat and be like, uh, hold on, call button, Uh, Did I hear the pilot right? Did he just say it's always been his desire to not crash very much? I would be like, is there a break we could pull? Uh, I'm going to have to say bomb on this plane or something to get off because I don't want to fly with that kind of pilot. Do you, would you, would you be comfortable if a pilot seriously said, it's been my desire not to do that very much? At what point is very much too much in that equation? One out of a hundred? One out of 50,000? Is that one you would be willing to take? <laughs> one too many. 
So what about our spiritual life? I, I don't sin very much. That got heavy, didn't it? But uh, it's, it's not that bad. Do you realize no matter how small and how insignificant you think that one little sin might be, it was that very sin that was responsible for piercing the flesh of God. Well, it's not near as bad as, <laughs> sorry, you don't get to use that scale because you're not God. So God don't look at the, the addict and the stay-at-home mom that's just always bitter and angry and full of pride and arrogance and everything. He don't look at those sins and say, oh, that guy's way worse. And thank God he doesn't. That's what makes grace so rich. It covers everything. Everything. I'm going to ask if you would stand with me. I'm going to close this in prayer. There is a fight going on. It's what makes the best stories in Hollywood. It's what makes the best love songs. It's what makes the most epic of poems. What makes the richest of reading is narrative and story that captures the idea of good versus evil, a villain versus a hero, hopelessness versus hope. You look at any story throughout history, those elements are just anchored in there. The things that we love, romance, heroes, all of that stuff, it's anchored in that idea. Father God, I pray that you would wake my soul up. Keep me alert and sober, diligent as I live my life. You above everybody else, even above my wife in this room. You, Father, you know how inundated I get with schedules and routines and tasks and one more family to call and one more bill to enter into the system and one more report to write and one more child to play with, one more meal to make, one more trip to take to the store or to the office. There's always one more thing, one more thing, and it's so easy for me to just drift off into just being numb to the reality of what's going on around me. And I give just a little bit every time without realizing I'm exchanging the kingdom of God for the kingdom of Satan. Don't let me do that, Father. Keep me from that. Keep your church from that. Help us to live in such a way that we are storming the gates of hell throughout every moment of every day. Remind us we're in a war. We need to wake up. And I ask this because I believe it gives you glory when we engage and fight the good fight. May you find your church faithful when we see you face to face. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.